God, I've been trying to learn my whole life how to not need any, anybody else. How to just do things on my own. Figure it out. Tackle problems. Find my own way. And while, God, I think there is nobleness to the fact that we are learning to stand on our own two feet and not overly depend on others, the fact that we were created for you, to know you, to be connected with you, reminds me that by saying I need you, that I'm coming back to my original creation design. That our original design was that we might breathe you in like air. That we might learn to think as you think. That we might walk and live in your strength and not our own. God, that's what you designed for us in your love. That we would be so united in that peace with you that we live every day in connection with you. But God, that means I got to unlearn a lot of things because I often don't want to need you. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be able to be strong enough on my own. I want to be able to just do what I want to do. And that is exactly what you are retraining in our hearts and our minds by the presence of your spirit with us every day. So Lord, we even joyfully admit we need you. Not reluctantly, but we do need you because we're not gonna be honest about that. That paves the way for your spirit to come and do what only you can do in and through us. So we need you. We need you. And may we say that with a smile. Because we know that you are the God we were created to be dependent upon. So God, as we, begin, as we sing that, May we now open our hearts and our minds to your word. We need your truth. We need your revelation. We need you to illuminate our hearts. Again, um, thank you that you're so gracious to do just that. We love you. We praise you. We adore you, God. And we get to pray all that through Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. All right, all right. Well, we continue in worship as we open up God's Word together. Uh, we're in our second week in this New Testament letter called First John. First John. Um, if you weren't able to make it last week, I would encourage you to go back. And last week was kind of like a foundation. But if you didn't hear last week, that's okay. Like you'll still be able to fully you know, connect with what we're talking about here today. But we're calling this series through First John, Beloved. Which I think is kind of a, kind of, where is that picture? You got that up there? There it is. I think it's kind of clever, personally. Because if you could summarize this whole book in one sentence, it's that we are learning to know who our God of love is. And who we are as his beloved children, so that we might then be loved as he loves us. Like if you want to summarize First John, that's a lot of what this book is emphasizing. Now who wrote it? Well, we still have many surviving writings of some of the earliest church fathers who tell us it was written by the Apostle John as, if the same, as in the same John who walked with Jesus. And he wrote this most likely as a much older man 
who has seen decades of how the Holy Spirit can be at work moving across the Mediterranean uh, world, seeing the church move. And so he wrote this letter with the love of a pastor to strengthen all of these new churches across the, the Mediterranean world in the first century. But honestly, it's not just for them, because as we see, like his words still resound today. And we saw last week in the first four verses that John is adamant that his readers know who Jesus is. He says, it matters what you believe about Jesus. As he starts his letter, he says, Jesus was fully God, that which was from the beginning. That's what that means. But not only that, he was fully human. He said, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. And that matters because if we know that Jesus was fully God and fully man, then he is the only one who can lead us into relationship with God that we might be united with him in joy. Is this all ringing a bell for those who were here last week? All right, great. So it matters what we believe about Jesus. But building on that today, we're going to see today how he goes on to say it also matters what we believe about human nature, about who we are as human beings. So I dare say that along with the question, who is God, one of the biggest questions asked across human history is, what is human nature? And by human nature, I mean that the the core parts of who we are, that drives the thinking, feeling, and acting, these, these qualities that all human beings share in common, no matter who you are or where you come from, what's fundamentally true across all of us. Well, Kirk, you're getting a little deep here, right? But I promise you, this is not a philosophy lecture today. Thank the Lord. But from ancient Chinese to the Hebrews to the Greeks, and I could keep going, every major civilization has wrestled with this question. What is human nature? Many biologists have concluded that we're simply evolved animals driven partly by instinct and partly by intellect. Sociologists often conclude that we're just the product of our tribe, Some psychologists say that our actions and inclinations are simply the result of our brain wiring. Historians can look back over history and see all the war and all the stuff and say, whatever we are, we're pretty messed up and we don't seem to get along very well. (laughs) That we're capable of much good, but also great evil. And so some people conclude, well, then human nature is mostly good, but all that other stuff just shows we're misunderstood or wounded. But then again, other times, we consciously hurt others. And our own selfishness, like my own selfishness, surprises me a lot, a lot of the time. Plus, if we're going to wrestle with this question, what is human nature? It's kind of weird. Because it's a question about ourselves, which automatically makes us a bit biased, don't you think? Blaise Pascal was a famous French man, smart man. And he once said, We believe almost only in the things we like. (laughs) I'm laughing because there's a lot of truth to that, is there not? That according to the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah, he says the heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? That if we're asking a question about what is human nature, we have to first admit that we have a hard time being objective about this very thing because it's about us. And so we see that the world is full of theories about human nature. And we're a bit biased about it. So how do we really know what's true concerning human nature? Who are we? 
Well, that takes us back to John's words this morning in his letter. And he wisely says this question of human nature is not first a philosophy question or a sociology question or a historian or a psychology. He says it's first a theology question. And theology is the study of God. And he says that only after seeing who God is can we really see ourselves for who we are. Well, why, John? Why do we need to see who God is before we can see ourselves, know ourselves? Second, oh, that, that's really the first question that we're going we're to dive into this morning. But then second, why does it matter what we believe about human nature? But then third, last, when we face the reality of who we are, and we start to see some things we may not really like to see, who is God for us still? So, this is the meat of what John wants to show us. We're going to start in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. We're reading to chapter 2, verse 2. That is page 986 in those blue Bibles in front of you if you want to turn there. Or you can open up your Bible app. But the three questions again. Who is God? When we see who God is, who does that show us we are? And despite who we are, who is God for us still? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. You can follow with me. John said... This is the message we have heard from him, being Christ, and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. Now if we claim that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for, all, for our sins and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Lord, I want to know reality. I know that I have a tendency to justify away or hide or deny certain realities in my own heart. But God, I want to be like you and I want to know you. And I know that's the prayer for many people in here too. So will you allow my words to be your words? Will you allow your spirit to work in our hearts? We, we certainly give you leeway to do so. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer in whom we trust. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, so back to our question. What is human nature? We know it's not just a modern question. It's an ancient question. It's a question that we have shared all across humanity. But we do not share all the same answer to that question. Why? Well, John is going to hit at, he says, we're looking in the wrong place for the answer. That instead of trying to figure it out on our own or based on what we can see on our own, he says, the only way we can know who we are is that if we know first who our God is. Why? Why does knowing God hold the key to be, knowing the truth about human nature? Well, John says, just as light exposes darkness... The holy love of God illuminates our true human nature. So let's look back at what John said. First, John makes it clear. He says, the message I'm telling you is not something I made up. 
It's something that I have heard and received from Christ himself. In other words, it's not something that I'm choosing to believe just because I like it, Blaise Pascal. No, he says, I heard it directly from Jesus, and now I declare it to you. Well, what is that message? He said, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? Well, those three words, God is light, pack more theological meat than my freezer after a Costco run. Like it is, those three, those three words about God pack a lot about who we are to know God to be. What does it include? Well, I'm going to say three, three main things. First, that as light brings life, God is the creator and sustainer of all life. Do you know what God's first words are recorded in Scripture? Genesis 1, 3, when God is creating the world, he says, let there be light. That it is from light that comes all life. That all life began with light. And John even makes that connection in the gospel when he said that in him Christ was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. God is light equals God is the life giver. That just as light is what wakes us up, just as light is what grows, God revives and gives light, life to all. But second. As light shines, God makes himself known to us and to this world. He says there is no darkness, deception, or manipulation in God. Nor does he just reveal himself to just a special few. But as the sun shines on all, the true light gives light to everyone. So that it is through his word and in Christ that we might behold the glory of God's goodness, greatness, the beauty of his love. He's revealed himself to us. But then last, as light illuminates the darkness, God's holy character reveals what's true and good. Scripture says God is holy, meaning that he is absolute purity perfect morality, and that under the light of his holiness, all darkness is exposed for what it is. But like a flashlight in the dark, God doesn't just illuminate so that we might know what's true and good, but that we might walk in the way that is true and good. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we see these characteristics are packed in those three words, God is light. But since God is light, and light cannot coexist with darkness, God cannot be joined to sin. This is going to become a hugely important point if we're going to understand what John's saying here. But from my experience, the word sin carries baggage with nearly everybody. Some, some, some of you grew up in traditions where anything that felt fun was considered a sin, Some of you, maybe only the bad stuff was considered sin. Others of you, you never talked about sin at all. So for for these reasons, it's worth giving a quick definition of what we mean by sin. Because at its core, biblically, sin is not allowing God to be God in our lives. It doesn't matter if if it's an action we do, a thought we think, or something we leave undone. That to sin is to reject God's truth in his way and choosing another instead. To sin is to reject God who is light and choose the darkness instead. 
But when we choose darkness over light, what do we end up with? Well, while light brings life, sin causes decay and death in and around us. That unlike, well, like light makes God clear, but the effect of sin is hidden shame. Light illuminates what's true and good, but sin flourishes in deception, wayward desire, and dissension. I'm pointing all of this out to say that just by the essence of who God is and what sin is, they cannot coexist. You guys tracking with me so far? But just as light exposes darkness, the more we see who God is, the more we can't help but see our sin. When I get up in the morning, my routine is that I go in the bathroom, I turn on the dim light, I look at myself in the mirror, make sure nothing crazy is going on, and then I get out of there and move on. But not too long ago, I stayed at a family member's house. And on the side of their sink, they had one of those high-powered, like, makeup mirrors. You ever seen these things? <laughs> like, why do we do this to ourselves? <laughs> That's my question. It's like a magnifying glass for your face, covered with a beaming light showing you everything. And so out of curiosity, I said, I'm going to bend down and see what I get. <laughs> Man, my face has more craters than the surface of the moon. <laughs> But that's what happens, right? When we move closer to the light, all of a sudden we see ourselves for who we really are. And the more we gaze at the majesty of God's purity, marvel at his steadfast love and grace, and consider his spotless perfection, the more we can't help but to see the stains of sin in our own hearts. Like Isaiah Isaiah 6, standing before the glory of the Lord, all he could do is say, Woe is me, man of unclean lips. That we can't really see who we are unless we see ourselves in the backdrop of God's holiness. But the reason why we don't often see who we are is because we're trying to measure ourselves against each other. We say, Well, I'm a pretty good guy because compared to that guy, but it's it's broken comparing to broken. You never see what whole looks like. You never see who we were meant to be as people made in the image of God. But it's only under the image of God that we see ourselves for who we are. And the closer we get to the light, the more we see those hidden places in our hearts because God must expose those things if we are to move closer to him and become like him. Some of you guys who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you know exactly what I mean. That why is it that 10, 20, some of you 30 years down the road walking with Jesus, all of a sudden you're seeing things in your heart you never saw. You're like, did I ever grow? Did I ever change? Yes. It just means that God grew closer to you. And now he's allowing you to see things that you weren't quite ready to see before. But only in seeing who God is do we see the sinful nature of our humanity. And why is it so important that we see our sinful nature for what it is and recognize our sin? Because for one, I don't really want to see it. Just like I didn't want to look at my face in that mirror ever again. Right? I don't really want to see the reality of what's going on inside myself. But what's the cost of not knowing? If I don't get down in that makeup mirror and look at my face, it's fine. Right? 
you'll let me know if something's going on, <laughs> right? But what's the cost if we keep God's light from exposing our own hearts? We start thinking that we don't sin. And if we think that sin doesn't matter or that it doesn't apply to us, we will not know life with God. I know the word sin is not popular today, but it has never been popular, guys. We downplay the reality of sin today, talk, act like today's different. It's not. It happened in John's day too. And one of the biggest deceptions of a sinful heart since the beginning is to try and convince us that we don't have actually any, anything going on with us. That we don't have any stains of sin. Because if we don't face up to it, we'll never go to God with it. And so John wants to see, he points out in this passage we just read, three forms, or three different deceptions that often come so that we don't have to face up to the reality of our own hearts. He says, the lie number one is first, some clay, claim they can sin all they want and still be good with God. John said, if we claim to have fellowship with God, God who is light, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Now, we may be willing to admit, yeah, I sin every once in a while, but the attitude he's saying is, it's all good. It's just fun. I'm just messing around. No harm done. The thinking goes, I know that I hold on to bitterness against people. I, I know that I fantasize and watch porn on occasion. I know I sleep with my girlfriend or boyfriend on occasion. I know I gossip. <laughs> Who doesn't? And I know not, not, God's not cool with it, but like he forgives me, right? But John's point is that if we're caught in habitual sin and it doesn't bother us, he says, do you really know God? Because as we said earlier, sin is not allowing God to be God in our lives. Sin is trying to have a relationship with God and pretending that we can have it in our own easy terms. And while that may seem innocent, sin only decays our faith, divides our heart, and leaves us in shame. It's like trying to have one foot on land and another foot in the boat at the same time. Like eventually over time, you're either going to be in a whole lot of pain or you're going to be in the drink. Likewise, we try to keep one foot following God, one foot in sin, and acting like it's all good until it's not. That's, sin, that's lie number one. But the second lie, he says, is some claim they are without sin. John again, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. <laughs> like, how can somebody say that though, right? I mean, like, we all know we're not perfect, but how can somebody be that arrogant? Well, it's actually pretty easy. We just call sin by another name. It's not gossip. I'm just asking for prayer requests. <laughs> I'm not talking bad about people behind their back. I'm just venting. It's not lust. I just need to relax and blow off some steam. I'm not jealous. I'm ambitious. It's not sexual immorality. It's self-discovery. It's not adultery. I'm making love. It's not sin. It's, it's how I grew up. It's my psychology. It's just my woundedness. And I'm not trying to trivialize the complexities of who we are as human beings. But I am trying to make a point that is how, of how easy it is to trivialize or ignore our sin simply by giving it another name. And if I call it something else, I'm without sin. That's lie number two. 
Lie number three, John says, others claim they've never sinned. He says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And this lie is perhaps the most sinister. Now, is he saying that people claim that they're perfect? No. Like, any right-thinking person would not claim that they're perfect. We all know that we're not. So how can we say that we've never sinned? It's actually pretty clever. There's a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. Some of you will correct my pronunciation on that later. That's fine. Um, But he was famous for saying, if God is dead, everything is permitted. This is a nice theological magic trick. Because what he's saying is, if you take God out of the equation, if we stop believing in God, and society just stops, starts denying God, you take away the st- any sort of standard for morality that is over all people. You take away the standard, you take away sin. Ta-da! You see that? Then, or we just invent our own standard, and conveniently, that standard never includes anything that we do wrong. So we say, like, I know murder is a sin because I don't murder. <laughs> but, like, I don't know, like, God's standard of sexuality or Jesus telling us to love our enemies, like, that's unreasonable. That's unreasonable. So, therefore, I, I reject that, but I like my own thing. And thus, many in our society, even in churches, have either ignored God's word or tried to rewrite it based on what they or our culture deem is right and wrong. And if we can decide morality on our own, we become our own gods and we start thinking, as long as I don't kill anybody or hurt anybody, I'm a pretty good person. Hooray, humanity, no sin here. You see that? So, John says, don't be fooled. That while we may not want to face up to it, It is our very sinful nature that wants to blind us to the reality of it. All right. So you guys have a great week. Enjoy. (laughs) Benediction. Here we go. No. (laughs) But thank God John doesn't leave us there. Thank God. John doesn't shine the light of God's holy love on our sin-stained souls just to leave us under the weight of guilt. He doesn't expose the reality of who we are just to leave us there. But where is he taking us? We see that God doesn't expose our sin to leave us in shame, but to lead us to the glory of his grace. So John gave us those three deceptions that either trivialize sin or deny its existence. But even when we do stop and we're willing to recognize the reality of our own sinful nature, there is still one lie often lurking to catch us. That when we start to actually see the reality of how broken and dark our hearts and selfish we can often be, there still is one more ditch that God's enemy likes to try to push us in. And this last lie is that I've messed up too much for God to forgive, love, and restore. And out of all the lies, this is the one that I've fallen for the most. I'll be honest. Don't get me wrong. I can justify away sin with the best of them. But for whatever reason, maybe it's my personality or whatever, this is the lie of shame. And for whatever reason, shame is the thing that I often 
held on to the most. Key, key example, it wasn't too long ago that I lost my patience with somebody close to me. I said some things to that person that I regret. But after that, man, I mentally beat myself up about it for a long time. Because see, from, shame, from sin naturally comes guilt. Guilt is actually often a good thing. It's like, the, it's, it's good in the way that pain in our body is good. Because it tells our conscience that something is wrong. But where we often go is from guilt to shame. And shame feels noble at first. Because we're thinking, I'm taking responsibility for, for, for my actions. And I'm punishing myself for what I have done. But let me say this twice. Shame is not from God either. Shame is not from God either. And while the glory of God's holiness exposes our sin-stained hearts, it's the glory of His grace that invites us closer to God again and again. Listen to 1 John 2, 1 and 2 again. John affirms, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, here's what Scripture lays out for us as the reality of who God is. Scripture reveals that our God is both holy and just. Meaning that God is only pure in all that he is and only righteous in all that he does. But this presents a little problem for us. Because if I'm sticking with the light metaphor, that just as we cannot approach the glory of the sun without death, we as those stained by sin cannot get close to God, a holy God. Also, How could we call God just and holy if he leaves sin unpunished? And if we've all sinned, you can see the problem. But God didn't just expose the problem to us. Thank God he became the answer. And while sin is treason against God and the just payment for sin is death, our just God sent his son Jesus to pay that in our place. That unlike us, Jesus never sinned. He is the righteous one. He upheld God's standards. And as such, he became the perfect atoning sacrifice for all sin. For it was at the cross that the just punishment of sin was placed on him. You want to see how dark sin is? Then look at what Jesus suffered. But it was also at the cross that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin with his life. To see the glory of God's grace, look at what Jesus suffered. It was at the cross that Christ both satisfied justice and met our deepest need. And the cross of Christ exposes the gruesome darkness of death or sin while also illuminating God's magnificent mercy for every sinner. So going back to the makeup mirror, when we look at ourselves, the backdrop of God's holiness, and we see our sin is real and it's ugly, and our first reaction is often to just look away in shame. But John's saying, no, 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 
Look at the glory of Christ instead. He is the righteous one who shed his blood that you might be forgiven. And when you believe this and receive it, the New Testament says that God no longer holds your sin against you, for you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Or as one of my favorite hymns says, and I'm going to sing it. Yeah, by golly, I'm going to sing it. And if you know it, you can sing it with me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen. It's the cross of Christ that exposes the gruesome darkness of sin while also illuminating God's magnificent mercy for every sinner. And because of Jesus, we can face the reality of our sin and come before our holy God who meets us. We know he meets us with grace and love as his adopted sons and daughters. Because of Jesus, we don't have to protect ourselves from reality or convince ourselves that sin doesn't matter or that, that, that we don't sin. Because of Jesus, we can allow the light of God's Spirit to expose whatever He wants to within us without making excuses, hiding, or shifting blame. Because of Jesus, John says that we can confess our sins, knowing that He, God, is both faithful and just. And because of Jesus, we can be confident that He will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Because of Jesus, we can get honest with God. And to confess means two things. One, that we name sin as sin. We don't try to give it another name. We, we just call it what it is. And two, we own it when we're responsible for it. Confession is not something we have to do in a special booth. Because of Jesus, you can talk to God on your own. You might also confess to trustworthy brothers and sisters in Christ. People who, who keep you honest, but they do it because they're for you and they love you. I can't tell you how liberating that is when we can do that and find those kind of people. But confession is a pathway to freedom. It's refusing. I'm not going to play games with this sin anymore because I see it for what it is. It is not for me. It is only to divide, to destroy, to, to tear down, to decay. But in Christ, shame and past regret no longer define you. He does. So today, you can drop the weight of your sin and shame off your back. Offer it at the feet of our gracious Lord and receive his grace yet again. And in fact, I want to invite you to do just that as we sing this last song. If you want to come down, forward, get on your knees as a sign of surrender, and mark this as a moment when you just get honest with God and receive His grace, then I invite you to do just that. 
But if you realize that there are certain, certain sins in your life or shame even that you've been holding on to, and you've been holding on to it for a long time, trying to deal with it on your own or shove it down or pretend like it's not there, God says, I am shining my light on it right now so that you would drop it and then receive the freedom of my grace. That's what he wants for you. If you want to come forward and do it as a, as a, like a tangible reminder, go for it. If you want to do that at your seat, go for it. But whatever God's leading you to do, I want you to do that now. So I'm going to pray. Worship team's going to come up. And then we're going to have a moment. Just you and God respond however you feel he's leading you to. But Christ's arms are open to you. So stand with me. Let's pray. God, I marvel at the reality of your holiness and your purity. That there is no one like you. That you are just in all that you do. And God, I love that about you until I recognize my own sin. Because when I see my own sin, all of a sudden, just looking at you makes me feel shame. But that shame was never from you. And so God, we recognize just by looking at that cross today, that anytime, any shame that we might be holding on to in this room, God, we, we want to drop that at your feet. Because that is not yours. You have clothed us in the righteousness of Christ because of what you've done for us. And we put that on today. We remind ourselves of that yet again. That we've been adopted as your sons and daughters. We don't have to be afraid of, of reality because reality is better than we ever could have dreamed in the, who you are and what you have done for us. So God, whatever business that you want to do with us today, whatever things you have us lay down, whatever sins you want us to confess, may we not be afraid to do that and get honest with you now, knowing that you are only for us, not against us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.